First of all, uh, thank you all for tuning in. It's really nice to see you all. I can't see you all, but those of you I can see. And um, we are, um, first of all, um, I, I, I didn't uh, have a chance to consider this and, uh, and ask, so I hope I won't be stepping over the line, but a uh, good friend of mine lost her father recently. Um, so I'm not going to announce the name because I didn't get to ask her beforehand, but uh, we're going to dedicate this shear in his memory. He was uh, a person who did a lot of chesed, and I actually benefited from some of the institutions that he helped to support. So this is my small way of being able to recognize that and give back a little to his memory, and it should be any Louis for his neshama. I have his name here, but I'm not going to announce it because, again, I didn't ask Um so a number of years ago on Yom HaShoah, um, we were privileged to hear the story of a Holocaust survivor, a woman by the name of Marlit Wendell, who shared her story with the Oraita boys. Powerful story. And she and her sister and her mother ended up in Auschwitz. They have actually consecutive numbers on their arms. And there are a lot of pieces of her story that really stuck with me. Um, but one of them in particular, which was the night that uh, she last saw her father. They were at home and her parents were going out and the babysitter came. They were living, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Vienna. And this was uh, after Kristallnacht and after the Anschluss. And um, I believe it was October 1938, uh, three Gestapo agents burst into their home. Now, her parents were out somewhere. She was eight years old. She doesn't know exactly where they were. But her parents were that they'd gone out for the evening. And they had a deal with the babysitter that they knew that police were showing up unannounced, taking people into the night. He was Jewish. He was a prominent businessman. And there was always the risk that something could happen. So... They made a they 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 had an arrangement that if in fact police came and were looking for him, that the babysitter would turn on the lights in the living room. The lights were left off just for this purpose. So they went out for the evening and they came back. And when they came back, they looked up at their apartment window. They saw all the lights were on. So they realized something was wrong. So the mother went upstairs because the children were up there. And the assumption was that they were looking for the men. That's what had always happened. You know, you, in Russia, they used to take the boys to the army. They had no clue what was coming down the pike. And he disappeared. And that was the last time they ever saw him. And the Gestapo agents had burst in the, into the house. And they had uh, gathered up the babysitter and the children. And when the mother came, she was taken as well. And they told them that they were coming down to police headquarters to, there were some issues with their papers, but they didn't need to take anything with them. And of course, they never got back to their home. After the war, they found out that her father had been taken. Eventually, he was picked up in a, in a, a roundup and ended up in Sachsenhausen. Um, and after um, uh, Reinhard Heydrich was assassinated, so the Nazis, by way of retaliation, took the inmates at Sachsenhausen and they killed every 10th person in the roll call as a message. And he happened to be the 10th one in the line. So they never saw him again. And at the end of this 
incredibly powerful presentation. So she opened up the floor to questions. And one of the boys asked her, is there anything you regret? Like looking back on your period, if you could do something differently, if you could change something, what would you? She said that for the rest of her life, the fact that she was uprooted from her home as an eight-year-old, if she could just for a moment go back to her house the way it was, the toys that she left behind, the room, the clothes, all the things as an eight-year-old that you're connected to that she never got to see again. Now, of course, you can't go back. That home doesn't exist. Reality doesn't allow for that. And that's really the question. Can you ever go back? We're in the month of Elul. And we're entering now the realm of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in a couple of weeks. And Jew Jewishly, certain things begin to fill our minds. Who are we? Who did we want to be? Have we gotten to where we hope to be? What could we change if, if, if but we would be allowed to change? And of course, the topic here is what we call in Hebrew tshuva. Now, because I don't know everybody on, on, on the screen and some people have more backgrounds, so I'll translate words, but, you know, feel free. I'm going to I'm going to open up the chat so that if while I'm talking, anybody. Um... Oh, OK, you have my permission. All right. Yeah. Well, this year is in, in memory of Robert Barron, who, who passed away uh, not long ago. We're still within the Shloshim and his daughter is is online. And so. She says that I can share that with you. Um, should be any Louis for his neshama. Um, if, um, if, if something I say doesn't register or I mistranslate or I forget to translate a word, feel free to put it in the chat and I'll, I'll fill in the details. So we're talking about tshuva. Tshuva comes from the word lashuv, to return. Can you ever go back? Is there a mitzvah to do tshuva? What is tshuva? When do we need tshuva? Now, the world translates tshuva as repentance. And in a certain, from a certain perspective, to repent is, is to regret and to, 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 to be mournful over what was. It's not exactly the Jewish idea of tshuva. So, first of all, is there a mitzvah to do tshuva? And how do we define tshuva? It's interesting that the Ramban... Nachmanides, arguably one of the top 10 rabbis in the last thousand years, uh, basically spanned the 13th century, spent his last few years living in Israel. Um, the Ramban not only believes that it is a mitzvah to do tshuva, which again, I'll translate in a moment, uh, but it's actually based on this week's portion. In this week's portion, Parshat Nitzavim, we say, Vishavda Adashem Elokech, and you shall return to Hashem, to God, to, you, to the Lord your God. And while some view this as a promise, that there will come a time when we will come home and we will come back after all of our terrible long journeys through the exile, the Ramban sees this as, as a challenge, as a command, that you have a responsibility to attempt to do tshuva. The Rambam, Maimonides, on the other hand, does not seem to say this is a, a mitzvah, to do tshuva. And I'm going to read for you, uh, uh, with you from the Rambam. Um, I'm actually going to, if, um, uh, let's see, let me see if I can find it. 
I can't find it in a second. Second. No, it disappeared from my screen. That's okay. I'm going to read from the Rambam in order to ask you a question. The, the Rambam's mag, Maimonides' magnum opus. The Rambam, by the way, spanned the 12th century. I assume most of us are familiar with him. Um, but if you had to pick the work of the Rambam that made him the Rambam, of Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, it was his magnum opus called the Mishnah Torah, or the Yad HaZaka, 14 books that encompassed the entirety of Jewish law and Jewish ritual. Uh, it's incredible, the organizational system that the Rambam employed in doing this in a time before computers, before social media, before we had anything online. Some of it was written when he was on the run in a cave. He clearly had a command of the entire Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Midrash Halacha. I mean, from A to Z, the entire Bible, the prophets, it's remarkable. And, and most incredible is the way he organizes this system. Up until the Rambam published his, his Yad HaChazaka, his Mishnah Torah, this sort of Magna Carta on Jewish law, um, if you wanted to learn or figure out what it was you were supposed to do, for example, in the laws of Shabbat, you had to go through the entire tractate of Shabbat, which is almost 150 double-sided folios in Aramaic. Very difficult thing to do. And not all the laws of Shabbat are in the tractate of Shabbat. The Rambam organized all of Halacha into a system that was easily discernible, easily discoverable, and easy to memorize. And uh, if you understand sort of how these 14 books work, you can find anything and everything you were ever looking for in Judaism. Once you find where it is in the Rambam, you can look up the verses, look up the Talmud, etc. So in the first book of the Rambam, which is the Book of Knowledge, um, the fifth section, the fifth set of halachah is called Hilchot Shuvah, literally the laws of repentance. And the Rambam says, very interesting, mitzvat aseyachat, in his heading before he begins his laws of repentance. He says, mitzvat aseyachat, there is one mitzvah, one positive commandment, vihi, and that is, that a person should return from his chet. Um, we're going to temporarily translate that as a sin. I don't think that's what it means, but okay. Lifnei Hashem, before Hashem, v'yitvadeh. And he should confess. And then the Ram says, and now we're going to explain this mitzvah. So the mitzvah according to the Ramam is that a person has to do tshuva and confess. Okay. Now, that's in the heading that with which the Rambam begins, the sort of title on the title page. But when you actually look in the laws that the Rambam brings, he actually says something very different. He says, when a person actually does tshuva, when he repents, when he relents from his transgression, he's obligated to confess. So in the heading preceding the laws of tshuva, the Rambam says that you have to do tshuva and confess. But in the actual laws, he says, the mitzvah is to confess. So which is it? Why the difference? So Rosolovitchik, in his uh, monumental work, Alachuva, which was transcribed from his classes by Rufinchus Peli, Soloveitchik says, in the Rambam system, it's important to note that there's very often a difference between the title page and the actual laws as written down. I'll give you an example. If you look in the laws of prayer in Hilchot Tefillah, in the title page, the Rambam says 
that a person has an obligation to serve Hashem, what's called Avodat Hashem in Hebrew, okay, to serve God. But in the actual laws, he says, a person is obligated to pray three times a day. So what's the actual obligation? Is it to pray three times a day, or is it to serve Hashem? So if Salvechik explains, in the title page, the Rambam is trying to communicate to us what the essence of the mitzvah is. What's it really about? But in the laws, which are meant to be practical, right? he's sharing with us what the practical actual mitzvah is, what the action is that you have to do. right? The essence of the mitzvah and the action of the mitzvah. The action of the mitzvah of prayer is they have to pray three times a day, they have to daily prayer. right? But the essence of the mitzvah is that it should be an act of serving Hashem. So if I'm praying three times a day and I'm not serving Hashem, I may be performing the mitzvah, but I'm not fulfilling it and it's certainly not fulfilling me. And there are various examples of this. So going back to our discussion of tshuva, what that means is that the action that a person does in order to fulfill the mitzvah, according to Maimonides, is to confess, right? And this, by the way, was done in, in the temple. You would go to an offering before you brought it up to the temple, and you would literally place your hands on the offering and confess, I, I made a mistake, this is what I did, I hope to do better in the future, etc. And that was your act of tshuva. That was the action that you did to fulfill the mitzvah of repentance. But the essence of the mitzvah is sheyashuv, that he should do tshuva, right? So what exactly is tshuva? Why is that the essence of the mitzvah? Now, some of us have spoken about this before, but it behooves us to take a moment. And I actually had a great discussion with the students that are right there recently. We very often are on a search for new material. We want... We want new ideas, we want something we haven't thought of before, a new conversation. And because of that, we, ev we very often neglect the value of reviewing the things that we already know to remind ourselves of how critical they are. This is probably one of those examples. What exactly is Jew, right? So Maimonides has a famous example that he brings in the Moran of in the Guide to the Perplexed. And he says, imagine that you're going through a forest. To some of you, this will sound familiar. Imagine that you're going through a forest. It's a very dark forest. And you have to get to the other side. And you get lost. And you're not sure which way you're going. And you get to a crossroads. And at the crossroads, you're not sure. Should you go to the left or should you go to the right? Well, you have to make a choice. So you take the path on the left. And eventually, the path leads through the forest. And at one point, you head up a hill. And you get above the tree line and you're standing on top of the hill, and you're above the trees. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, I don't know, maybe you were trying to get across Central Park and you see that the buildings of Fifth Avenue are not ahead of you. They're behind you. You're heading in the completely wrong direction. You've lost your way. And you realize that at that crossroads, instead of going to the left, you should have taken the right road. Well, now the question is what you do. Well, you have a few options, I suppose. You can sit on the hill and commiserate, right? The good news is you won't get lost, you won't get further lost, but you're not going to get to where you have to get to. You can do what some people do, which is take a shortcut through the forest. That's usually when you run into the people in the movies with six fingers. That's not a good idea, right? Those shortcuts always make trouble. Really what you have to do is you have to go back to that crossroads. Only this time, instead of taking the road on the left, you have to take the road on the right. So the forest is life. And getting to the other side, <clears throat> I guess, is becoming the person that we want to be. And life is full of crossroads. 
And very often, you take the wrong road. I don't know, you walk into a room and somebody left a wallet on the table and it's got a lot of cash. If getting through the forest is to become a better human being, you know what the right thing is to do. But you're faced with a crossroads. So if you look around and no one's there and you take the cash and you put it in your pocket and you walk out of the room, you took the wrong road. And you're further away from becoming the better person you hope to be. So let's say one day you realize that you made a mistake. What do you have to do? You have to go back to the crossroads and this time take the right road. In other words, tshuva, lashuv, to go back, is attempting to go back and become the person that I always wanted to be. That's what tshuva is all about. Now, what's interesting is that the Ramban, who describes the mitzvah of tshuva as appearing in this week's portion of Nitzavim, we actually read a double portion this week, but it's specifically in the portion of Nitzavim, doesn't ask this question, but it's interesting, why does this appear here in the portion of Nitzavim? I mean, we're almost at the end of the Torah. The Rambam puts the laws of tshuva way in the first book of all 14 books at the beginning. Why doesn't tshuva appear earlier on? There's certainly no shortage of individuals who messed up and need to go back and become better, all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Lot leaves Abraham, Yishmael and Yitzchak, the brothers and Yosef. It's a, it, the, the sin of the golden calf. Why do we have the portion... So I want to suggest that this portion is called Nitzavim. Nitzavim means to be standing. Atem Nitzavim Mayom Kulchem, you are all standing here today. Now that's a term that one doesn't find often in the Torah. I suspect because in life you're never standing still. There's no such thing as standing still, right? And I remember when I was a kid, I got beaten up one too many times and I finally decided, it's a longer story, I started uh, studying karate. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you get a little better at it. And one day, maybe you're a yellow belt or a green belt. The sensei notices that a couple of uh, new recruits have come in. And he comes over to you and says, you know, take these new guys, take them on the side, and just show them how to do, I don't know, a horse dance or punch, whatever it is, right? Now you're a green belt. That's not a big deal. And you feel so special the sensei asked you to do this, right? So you take them on the side and you talk, you know, teach them how to throw a punch and to make sure that there's an action and a reaction and that your body is squared and you find it, whatever it is that it takes in this particular style to throw a punch. And then, you know, they probably could feel kind of silly. They came, they're all excited to be flying through the air and doing somersaults and breaking boards. And you're just telling them to pretend they're riding on a horse and punching in the air, but okay. And when you finish the evening, they go off and maybe they come back a week later. Now, you told them you should practice this at home in front of a mirror. And when you get back, when they walk in the dojo a week later, in one second, you can tell which one of them practiced and which one of them didn't. Because the one who did is in a totally different space. And when a person is new to something, you can very quickly see that they're moving. But what about if Mikhail Barishnikov? I once read an article, Mikhail Barishnikov was describing right, famous dancer, ballet dancer, the process he went through to train and, and to exercise in preparing for his productions, 
And he, he mentioned in that article that practice for him became a necessity. And if he didn't practice one day, he knew that he wouldn't be able to reach the level of performance that he wanted. Now, if Mikhail Baryshnikov didn't practice dancing for a day or two, you and I would not be able to tell the difference, but he could tell the difference. You're never standing still. So it's strange that Hashem Moshe says to the Jewish people, here you stand today. Judaism is all about the journey. The first time God speaks to a Jew, lech lecha, right, go. Every Friday night on Shabbat, we start with lechuna ranana, lecha dodi, go and sing, go my beloved, right? You're not supposed to say to somebody, lech bishalom, go in peace. The Mishnah says, the rabbis teach, you're supposed to say lech lishalom, go towards peace, because you're on a journey. And if you ever think you got there, you'll never get there. The only time we actually say that someone has arrived is literally when we lower them into the ground. And then we say, Lech b'shalom, v'tanuach b'shalom, go in peace, right? This is the end of the journey for now until the next journey begins. So why do we say you're standing? So I saw a beautiful idea. I believe it was in the Gera Rebbe, in the Svasen. It says there are points in life where you have to pause. You have to take stock of where you are before you can decide where you're going. Now, this is interesting. We just started a new year in a right. So our 16th year, Baruch Hashem, 80 new boys walked in the door, and I will attempt to meet with each one. Can you hear me now? Lift your finger if you can hear me. Okay. Right? So he really wants to connect to God. He feels like he's been doing all of this. It's been a routine. How does he get a close relationship with God? I said, okay, great. How are you going to know if you're succeeding? And then I got that look. You know, the look when a deer is caught in the headlights. We have to think these things too. What are our goals this year? Where do we want to be a year from now? I have a, a piece that's on my wall. I'm going to read it to you. The American Society of Training and Development, called the ASTD, did a study on accountability and found the following statistics. Okay? The probability of completing a goal, if you have an idea or a goal, is 10%. In other words, the minute you have an idea, you have a goal, you're 10% you're more likely to complete it just by having a goal. If you consciously decide you will do it, it goes up to 25%. If you decide when you will do it, it goes up to 40%. If you plan how you're going to do it, it goes up to 50%. If you commit to somebody that you will do it, it goes up to 65%. And if you have a specific accountability appointment with a person you've committed to, it goes up to 95%. That's unbelievable. So let's say for argument's sake, I want to lose weight, right? If I set a specific time that I'm going to weigh myself, 
and I make myself accountable to someone, right? And and I verbalize that I'm going to do that. The likelihood of succeeding goes up to 95%. Now, this gets interesting because what does it mean to have goals? The Rambam in Hilchot Deot says, Heveisham Adam Deotav Tamid. A person has to constantly assess what his, where he's at, right? In order to get anywhere. So what does that mean? What's the first thing you have to do? I'm just using weight loss as an example because our daughter, Mitzvah Shem, is getting married in two weeks and my wife has given me the holy word that I have to fit into my wedding suit. So it's out of my mind, right? But okay. So, so what's the first thing you have to do if you want to lose weight? You have to weigh yourself. You have to know how much you weigh. The second thing you have to do is figure out how much you should weigh. If a person just got out of a POW camp in Vietnam and he wants to lose weight, he's probably got a psychological challenge. He actually needs to gain weight. So where am I and where do I want to get to? Once you know where you are and you figure out where you want to get to, then you can create a system to see how you get there. And of course, that system has to have metrics. You have to be able to measure whether you're getting there, right? That is the essence of tshuva. There are three stages to tshuva. The first stage of tshuva is hakarat hachet, to recognize that I've made a mistake. It is remarkable how many people in life don't even recognize that they've made a mistake. They don't know there's something wrong with the particular behavior that we're doing. And if you don't think there's anything wrong with it, you can't fix it. So some of you may have heard, I'm sure I've spoken about this before, but when I was in the army a long time ago, um, we spent a significant amount of time in Lebanon, and I'm thinking of a specific six-month period. It was a very difficult period, a lot going on, ambushes and shootings, and some guys who didn't make it out of there. Every single guy in my unit, but I mean every single guy in my platoon started smoking, all of us. In fact, the Israeli army used to give us these Assyria, these big boxes of rations because it wasn't always easy to get food to us, and, and they would you know drop them in. And they had soup nuts and they had canned goods and they had two cartons of cigarettes. Somebody must have figured out that if guys were in a stressful situation, having a cigarette, especially for guys addicted to smoking, would be a good thing. So everybody started smoking. And I guess the reason we started smoking was A, because it was a very stressful period of time. And B, because that little warning on the box that says this is dangerous for your health. When you're sitting in Lebanon, you don't know if you're going to get home at the end of the week. So that didn't have much of an impact. Everybody started smoking. Not only did everybody start smoking, but I remember this. I didn't think there's anything wrong with smoking. I actually thought it was a good thing. I can remember a couple of specific events that were very difficult. And afterwards, someone gave me a cigarette and it calmed me down. So I actually thought it was a good thing I was smoking. It prevented me. It allowed me to like whatever it is. It took me a while after I got out of the army to realize what a terrible habit it was, never mind the health issues. When you're 19, you don't think about health issues like that. So if you think that smoking is a good thing, you're never going to stop smoking. The first stage is, do you know you're making a mistake? The word hate, by the way, is not a sin. The word hate is a mistake, right? In fact, in modern Hebrew, if you miss the target at, I don't know, gun range, it's to miss the mark, right? It's a very non-judgmental way to look at it. Sin implies that you're evil. Hate implies you've made a mistake. We all make mistakes. So the first stage is, I have to know I'm making a mistake. The second stage is it has to bother me. You know, sometimes a person smokes. He knows it's a dumb thing to do. He might even be a doctor, but it doesn't bother him enough, so he's not going to change, right? By the way, charata, regret, is not guilt. Regret is the disparity between the way something is and the way I want it to be. 
when I know that I weigh X and I want to weigh Y, I have regret because I want to be in a different space. Regret isn't necessarily a negative thing. Guilt is a negative thing. I'm not a big believer in guilt. I don't think Judaism is a big believer in guilt. So the first stage is I have to recognize that I'm making a mistake. And the second stage is it has to bother me. The third stage is I have to decide that I want the future to be different. How do you decide you want the future to be different? You have to make a plan. And a plan has three stages. The first stage, right, right, if you think about it, is where am I? The second stage is where do I want to get to? And the third stage is how am I going to get there? Now, that's an important piece. Let's say a person wants to lose weight. And he weighs himself and he realizes he's 200 pounds. And for whatever the reason, and he goes online, finds out what his body mass index, however one comes in, he realizes he has to weigh 170. So he wants to lose 30 pounds, but he knows it's hard to lose weight. He says, you know what? I'm just going to get this done within one week. I'm going to lose 30 pounds this weekend. So that's, you can't lose 30 pounds in a weekend unless you cut your leg off. It's not really a good idea. So the metrics will tell you whether your plan works. Now that we understand that there are three stages to chuba, knowing knowing I'm making a mistake, regretting it, making a plan for the future. Now that we understand that a plan involves three different stages, where am I, where do I want to get to, and how am I going to get there, which involves metrics. And then, of course, you have to actually do it. Now I can go back to the Rambam. The Rambam says, right, why is the Rambam say that the essence of tshuva is sheyashuv, but the action of tshuva is to confess, right? Because until you verbalize something, it's not real. But the essence of it has to do with what's not verbalized. What I recognize, where I want to be, and how I want to get there, right? Very interesting that this concept occurs as Moshe gives one of his final speeches to the Jewish people as they're about to enter the land of Israel. They're going to leave the comfort of the desert. The manna will stop falling from heaven. The clouds of glory will waft away. The Jewish people will have to form an army and they will have to fight for the, what they want. They'll have to conquer land. They'll have to inherit the land. This is the second generation born in freedom, but having never known their own society. And Hashem says to them, and Moshe says, well, really, Hashem says to them, take a pause, take a moment, know where you are and think about where you want to be and think about how you're going to get there. That is this month of Elul. This month of Elul is all about where we are and where we want to get to, right? This is the period of time when when we think about where were we a year ago? You know, come Yom Kippur, we're going to all beat our breasts for this mistake and that mistake. And it's a little depressing because, you know, didn't we just do this not that long ago, right? Am I still frozen? I'm just open the chat. No, okay, right? So we just did this last year. How will this be different? It's only different if every year we succeed in knowing where we're at and where, and where we want to be. If we have a me- a, an ability to measure that something's changed. And the last thing I want to say, and then we'll open the floor if anybody has any questions, um, because the goal of this was just some brief thoughts on tshuva to get us into a space to begin to prepare for Rosh Hashanah. Um, I think sometimes the big picture is a little overwhelming. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Jewish people, redemption, all the big mistakes that we've always made in life. It seems to me that one of the smartest things we could do at this period of time is just to pick one thing. 
you know, Rav Yisrael Salanter, who was the founder of the Musar movement, towering Torah scholar, um, affected a movement to attempt to bring the Jewish people back to a more ethical behavior. And there's a famous debate that he had with Chaim Brisker. Right? He, Rav Yisrael Salanter, we're talking about the um, early 18, early to mid 1800s. And Rav Yisrael Salanter, um, if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Sozalanter believed that the Jewish people had gotten so into the detail of halacha, of the laws, they were losing the spirit of the law. They were losing how do we become a better human being and mensch and ballast. So he founded this movement to teach people, the Muslim movement, and he used to teach, you know, how to change your character traits and what to work on. So Rav Chaim Brisker uh, took issue with him. And he said, you know, what do you mean a, a, mus- a movement to become better? That's the Torah. If you learn Torah and you do the mitzvot, you'll become a better human being. Rav Salanta's response to Rav Chaim Brisker was Rav Chaim Brisker is right. If you learn Torah and do mitzvot like Rav Chaim Brisker, you don't need a Muslim. The rest of us, we need a little work. And one of the foundations of his movement was one day at a time. To pick one thing, one, one idea that I want to work on this year. To, 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 to to figure out where I'm at on that topic, to figure out where I want to be, but not want to be in terms of like what the rabbis say, what the Talmud says, just where I really think I could get to. And then to think about how I'm going to get there. And Rabbi Salzlati used to say that it's easier to study the entire Talmud than it is to change one character trait. If we can work on just one item and change that one item, that opens up a whole way a plethora of possibilities for a good year, right? And the Rambam, Maimonides, in Hilchodeot, has a whole discussion about, um, you know, creating balance in your life and how to avoid extremes, how to find that middle road. And at the end of his first chapter, where he talks about all of the, the ideals and the values and where we're supposed to be, he says, okay, this is great. How do you make this part of your life? He says, Yasev, Yishanev, Yishalesh, you have to do this again and again. Ad she'in botarach. Says the challenge is to turn the ideal into a habit. Now, what's a habit? Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, uh, researched this topic and suggested that on average, for the average human being, with the average action, it takes 60 times to turn something into a habit, right? Now, what's the definition of a habit? Definition of a habit is that you do something without thinking about it. There's no resistance, right? I wear a keep on my head. And I've been wearing a keep on my head for as long as I can remember. So I don't have to think about it. There's no, it's not It's not annoying to me to wear a keep on my head. I've been doing it my whole life. But sometimes you meet, you know, high school kids or younger kids, and they're not used to wearing a keep on their heads, and it's annoying for them. And they're still resisting it, so it's not a habit yet. Right, waking up in the morning and saying my prayers to have it. For some people, it's not a habit. So to take one thing that you want to work on and to transform it into a habit. And it's interesting. I used to think a long time ago that if you if you want to develop a relationship with a mitzvah, study it, understand what it means, develop a relationship with it, and then you can start to practice it. Turns out that might not be true. Turns out you might be better off first turning into a habit, even if you don't fully understand it yet. Because until it's a habit, there's always going to be a conscious or a subconscious resistance to it that might prevent you from turning it into a habit. So whatever that habit might be, 
It could be as simple as deciding to start your day with a smile, to find someone to say a nice word. It could be to study a piece of Torah for three minutes every morning. Any possibility. But to me, as we enter closer to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, imagine if each of us, just those of us on this call, could find one thing that we want to change, one habit we want to work on, so that the world that we inhabit and the world that we impact becomes a little bit better. And then you multiply that by all the people on this call, never mind all the people that we influence, and the whole world changes. So that's a little bit of food for thought on the topic of tshuva and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as we go deeper into entering these beautiful times. I, I left a little time on purpose in case anybody has any questions. Um, hopefully I'm not frozen anymore. So if you have a question, yes, Nancy. First, I want to thank you for dedicating this shiur in memory of my father. Sure. And my question is, could you talk a little bit more about getting back to the crossroads? Oh, sure, sure. It's a good question. You know, first of all, getting back to a crossroads sounds like a, a simple activity, but obviously the biggest question is, how long ago were you at the crossroads? How many other turns have you taken, right? You know, there's, um, it's a longer story, but there was a, a student once who, very put together fellow, um, I won't say too much about him because on the off chance he ever hears this, I don't want him to think I'm talking about him. But, uh, you know, he was a, I think he was in his early 30s and uh, professional, good-looking guy. And for some reason, he just couldn't seem to find the right girl. Now, I'm not a matchmaker. I'm really bad at that. I'm the guy who sets up the Amazon and the Pygmy. But he was such an easy, I mean, so I actually broke my rule. My wife has convinced me I'm not good at it, and I think she's right. And I actually introduced him to a girl, and they started going out. And I was like, this is amazing. And then when I was in touch with him a few months later, he had broken up with this girl. And this had happened again and again. And I couldn't figure out. He was a put-together guy. It was easy for, for him to find a girl to date. So finally I said to him, look, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe you're missing something. And I recommended that he see somebody. Like, maybe there's something blocking him from committing. Anyway, he found a woman. Uh, I helped him find the woman who was an, a, a psychologist who worked on Adlerian therapy. Adler was a student of Freud. He, he differed somewhat from Freud, but one of his basic principles was that very often, most of us early in life, experience some sort of basic trauma. And that basic trauma colors the way we view the world. It's a mistake, right? And if we can get back to figure out what that initial trauma was, and how it caused us to view the world, and the fact that that's not really accurate, we don't really think that that's the way you should view the world, then you can sometimes undo a lot with a very little bit of work. And this person went through this process. We're not talking about years on the couch. We're talking about a few months. And discovered, you know, he had grown up uh, in a family that had a very unhappy family. The marriage was a very unhappy marriage. And he basically thought that if you get married, you're going to be unhappy. And this had become so part of his thought process that it was subconscious. He didn't occur to him that he was thinking this. Now, if you subconsciously think that if you get married, you're going to be unhappy, well, then obviously you're going to have a hard time getting married. Once you know that that's the problem, well, then you can go about different systems to fix it. So sometimes the crossroads is not a mistake we made by doing something wrong. It could be a mistaken perception that we gained. And we pick up these perceptions over long periods of time. We're influenced by people 
who may mean no harm. Sometimes they give us these perceptions because of their mistaken perceptions and the way they were impacted. The ability to sort of take a pause and recognize that the way I'm seeing something is mistaken and choose to see it through a different lens can sometimes unlock enormous amounts of behavior and change the way we look at the world and, and take a load off our shoulders and so on and so forth. So I don't know if that sort of relates to your question, but but I do think that's very much a part of going back to the crossroads. And I think just the fact, you know, just the fact that you set out on a journey, you know, there was a good number of years ago, there was a boy who came here and it became very apparent after a week or two that he just, he just couldn't handle what we were doing here, full day of study, et cetera. He had a lot of issues needed to work on. And, and, you know, we helped him realize that and he ended up going back to the States. And I remember the last conversation I had with him before we got on the plane, I said, don't underestimate the power of the fact that you decided you wanted to try this out. You came all the way to Israel. You put in a couple of weeks of effort. You started a journey. Don't assume that that has no value. If, if anything, the fact that you took this journey that allowed you to see you need to have a different journey, that's valuable. Just starting the process is a healthy thing. And that's also part of this, this period of time that we have in Elul, to, to begin the journey. You know, one of the things I love about, is, about Judaism is that we're never meant to be stuck. You know, we, 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 we're very self-evaluating. We, we're constantly trying to see what we can do better, what we can change. Being in that mindset, especially in this period of time of the year, when everybody else is going through the same mindset, that has to unlock enormous potential, I think. Does anybody else have a question? Anybody? Okay. I will be the rabbi who ends on time. But uh, I want to thank you for listening. This was really special. And uh, if anybody, you know, realizes afterwards you did have a question, you're welcome to WhatsApp me or email me. Uh, God willing, eventually I'll get to it. Some of you know I'm a little slow on email. But really, I, I just want to wish everybody a, a happy, a healthy, and a sweet year full of lots of good things and many reasons to celebrate. Hashem should bless us. This should be the last time we have to study on Zoom because next time you will be here, we'll be in your shalayim. We'll get to study in person. So much more fun. I can give you a cup of coffee. But uh, until then, I wish you a good kibbench dior, and a sweet, happy, and healthy year. Thanks for listening. Shana Thank you.